Welcome back, family. We are continuing our discussion of CUAs. What the heck is that? That is congenital uterine anomalies. Those initials are much more common in the UK than here in the US, but nonetheless, it's easier to say CUA than congenital uterine anomalies. In this session, we're going to cover and pick up where we left off in part one, which is now dealing with reproductive outcomes and potential surgical correction and management. Hey, did you do it? Did you go straight to part two without listening to part one? Come on, don't cheat. Go back and listen to part one. All right, let's get on to part two. Congenital uterine anomalies are mostly diagnosed incidentally during investigations for infertility or recurrent miscarriage or maybe even some menstrual abnormalities. So the presentation and the workup can take several forms. Congenital uterine anomalies associated with obstruction, for example, like a unicornuate uterus that has a rudimentary horn or even a uterine didelphus, but that has an obstructed hemivagina or maybe there's vaginal or cervical agenesis or a complete transverse vaginal septum, these kind of obstructive disorders usually present with pelvic pain due to hematometria, hematocopos, or the development of endometriosis. Of course, primary amenorrhea may also be a presentation in women with complete agenesis, like those that have the mayer rokitansky kusterhauser syndrome. So you can see there's a lot of different presentations that can lead to an evaluation where a congenital uterine abnormality or anomaly can be found. Now, the literature has linked or has associated several adverse outcomes to the presence of congenital uterine abnormalities or anomalies. These anomalies have been implicated as potential causes of infertility, recurrent miscarriage, preterm delivery, fetal malpresentation, and even fetal growth restriction. These women are also reported to have increased rates of preeclampsia and stillbirth. The types of congenital uterine anomalies are individually associated with various degrees of adverse outcomes. A systematic review of close to 4,000 women with anomalies reported that those with canalization defects, like a septate or even a partial septate uterus, appear to have the poorest reproductive performance. Again, so that's a clinical pearl. Those who have a canalization defect, specifically a septate or a partial septate uterus, tend to have the poorest reproductive performance. Women with a septate uterus also tend to have reduced conception rates, so that's infertility, and increased rates of first trimester miscarriage, preterm birth, and fetal malpresentation at delivery. Now, compared with those who just have a partial septate uterus, women with a complete septum tend to have the poorest of the outcomes. See, this is why it's important to go back and listen to part one. Remember that we talked about three different phases of where these defects can occur. And here we're talking about the cannulization phase where the two different ducts come together and fuse. And if there's a problem in that cannulization, that's where this septum comes into play. But there's also unification defects. And we covered that in part one. Unification defects are things like the bicornuate or the unicornuate or the didelphic uterine family. These do not appear to reduce fertility, but they are associated with increased rates of adverse pregnancy outcomes. The risks are dependent on the type of unification defect. Women with bicornuate and unicornuate uteri have an increased risk of first trimester miscarriage, 
preterm birth, and fetal malpresentation, while women with uterine didelphus seem to have an increased risk of preterm labor and fetal malpresentation. Now, regardless of whether a woman has a cannulization defect or a unification defect, there is one pregnancy outcome that is shared between the two, and that's the increased risk of spontaneous preterm birth. But of course, right now, there just isn't enough data to show one way or the other what's the best screening and prevention of preterm birth in women with these congenital uterine anomalies. Of course, as with the general population, if you know that your patient has a congenital uterine anomaly and is pregnant, then it would be wise to do at least transvaginal ultrasound screening for cervical length, starting at 18 or 20 weeks of gestation. This sounds like a good stopping point because we got to focus next on management. And it's kind of tricky and complex, but here it is very briefly as a very high-level overview. Look, for surgical correction, there's two main types or two main boxes. We're either correcting obstructive abnormalities, which really is more for pain relief because an obstructed hematometria or hematocopos is just terrible and can lead, of course, to decreased quality of life and even things like endometriosis. Those are for obstructive lesions where the goal is relieving the obstruction. But what about non-obstructive findings like a septate uteri? Well, let's talk about these management issues next. While there is an unclear but probable association between congenital uterine anomalies and adverse reproductive outcomes, the effectiveness of surgical treatment of non-obstructive uterine abnormalities to improve these reproductive outcomes, especially if they are found incidentally, like in the patient that I mentioned at the intro of Part 1, it's actually unproven and debatable. Women diagnosed with complex congenital uterine anomalies may require psychosocial support and counseling to address functional and the emotional effects of these findings. Future fertility options should be discussed with adolescents and their parents and guardians. The presence of associated renal tract anomalies must also be ruled out prior to any surgical interventions. The aim of congenital uterine anomaly management are to treat anatomical distortions that are associated with obstructive abnormalities to relieve symptoms like pain and improving quality of life and to avoid long-term health and reproductive adverse consequences. For those that have non-obstructive anomalies, the goal is to improve reproductive outcomes in infertile women or women who have experienced recurrent miscarriages. Now, the ultimate goal is to increase live births at term with an associated reduction in long-term neonatal morbidity and mortality. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we get to the issues of non-obstructive anomalies like a bicornuate or a didelphus uterus, or of course, the most problematic, the septate uterus, let's just rule out, let's just talk about obstructive congenital anomalies. 
Of course, as we mentioned, vaginal obstructive lesions need to be corrected, and vaginal abnormalities like a transverse septum or even a longitudinal septum are, well, the easiest to repair because we're not talking about the uterine structure here. But while a unicornate uterus does not warrant surgical intervention, a functioning rudimentary horn frequently does. And the reason is, is that can it cause a lot of pain with a hematometria, especially if it's non-communicating. Remember, we're talking about obstructive congenital uterine anomalies of the uterus. So for those unicornate horns that have a rudimentary horn that's non-communicating, that typically has to be removed because it decreases pain and helps overall quality of life. Here's a clinical pearl. So don't forget that these obstructive horns aren't just a pain issue, but removal is required and is consensus opinion because not only does it relieve pain, but it also prevents, it reduces the risk of an ectopic pregnancy happening in that rudimentary horn. Now, onto the unification or the fusion defects. About bicornuate and didelphic uteri, traditionally, abdominal metroplasty was performed to unify or restore the shape of the uterus, and it remains the only surgical treatment available for women with unification defects. Again, the most typical are a bicornuate or the didelphic uteri. This intervention is not generally considered or advised in the absence of significant adverse reproductive history. Evidence on improving reproductive outcomes following abdominal metroplasty for these unification defects are, the truth, very limited and are conflicting. Only one control study of only 21 women with a bicornuate uteri, 13 of whom did not undergo surgery, and 8 who underwent abdominal metroplasty actually recorded no improvements in obstetrical outcome. However, these surgeries have been associated with things like prolonged hospital stay, longer recovery time, post-op intraperitoneal adhesions, and potentially uterine rupture during subsequent pregnancy. All right, now before we move on to the surgical correction of the septate uterus, here's the clinical pearl as we talked about correction of fusion or unification defects. Currently, abdominal or laparoscopic metroplasty for these fusion or otherwise known as unification defects is generally not advisable owing to its potential complications and lack of proven efficacy in improving reproductive outcomes. This brings us to the septate uterus. Remember, this is a defect of cannulization or resorption. Hysteroscopic metroplasty or hysteroscopic transcervical division of the uterine septum has become the current treatment of choice for this condition, although as yet there really hasn't been any adequately powered studies or RCTs to show one technique better than the other Pre-op endometrial suppression with GnRH is not routine, but may improve visualization and operative precision. However, there's insufficient evidence for the use of gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonists, danazole, or any other medication to thin the endometrium prior to hysteroscopic division of the septum. The procedure is preferably performed in the early follicular phase of the menstrual cycle. The length of the uterine septum may vary from a small septum of 1 centimeter to a very large septum extending from the fundus to the internal cervical os. Of course, intravascular intravasation of fluid is a risk, especially if you get into some venous bleed, so you have to track those ins and outs at hysteroscopic surgery. 
Remember that one of the feared, dreaded complications of hysteroscopic resection of any tissue is the formation of intrauterine adhesions, again, a separate adverse outcome. Various methods from a copper IUD to hormone treatment with estrogen, combination therapy with IUD and hormone treatment, or even intrauterine autocross-linked hyaluronic acid gel have been used to try to prevent intrauterine adhesions after operative hysteroscopy. Intrauterine post-op hormone treatment, especially if pre-op GnRH agonists had been given, is frequently used to enhance endometrial proliferation and to reduce adhesion formation, but there's just not a lot, a lot of data, a lot of efficacy showing that this works. Now, while there is no evidence of benefit of using IUDs or an intrauterine balloon to reduce the risk of adhesions after hysteroscopic septum resection, there is some evidence that intrauterine autocross-linked hyaluronic acid gel can reduce the presence, the formation of intrauterine adhesions. After hysteroscopic resection, most would defer conception until about three months to allow for proper uterine healing. Some advocate a second-look hysteroscopy to rule out the presence of dense intrauterine adhesions, but this is not universal. Well, here's the question. Does this even work? I mean, hysteroscopic resection can risk bleeding and infection, adhesion formation, and intravascular intravasation of volume. But does it work? Well, let's take a look at the few but some published literature on hysteroscopic resection of septums. Well, first thing right off the bat, there's no published RCTs that assess the effectiveness or complications of hysteroscopic septum removal. Observational studies in women with no other history have reported significant improvements in pregnancy outcome with reduction in miscarriage rates leading to increased live birth rates, although there's a lot of heterogeneity in the populations and in the definition of a uterine septum in those studies. A systematic review and a meta-analysis of controlled trials published in 2014 reported a decreased probability of spontaneous miscarriage in women treated with hysteroscopic resection of the septum compared with women who were not treated. There was no difference in conception rates and preterm delivery rates among the hysteroscopic reception and the control group. Although observational studies have found a benefit in removing the septum in women with a history of infertility or miscarriage, a Cochrane review that was released in 2017 did not identify any published randomized trials assessing the efficacy of pregnancy outcomes after hysteroscopic metroplasty. So if we take a look at the observational data and some systematic reviews, then septum removal seems to help, but only in women that already have a history of infertility or a history of recurrent miscarriage or recurrent adverse pregnancy outcomes. Let's summarize and come to an end to this podcast. First, Currently, abdominal or laparoscopic metroplasty for fusion of unification defects is generally not advisable owing to its potential association with significant intra-op and post-op complications and lack of evidence to support improved reproductive outcomes. So remember, whether it's abdominal or laparoscopic metroplasty for fusion or unification defects, it's generally not advisable. Regarding septal removal hysteroscopically, while high-quality evidence on the efficacy and safety of the procedure is lacking, 
control studies have indicated that hysteroscopic septal division reduces miscarriage rates and results in improved live birth rates. So on the basis of hysteroscopic resection data, it can be offered on an individualized basis for women with recurrent miscarriage or in women who have just poor obstetric repeated outcomes. Man, I don't know about you, but I feel like that was a lot of information. But it's a great review, starting with part one with embryology and now with the management of these congenital uterine abnormalities. Thanks for being part of our podcast family. And we'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.